Father, thank you, Lord, for this church, for the loving hearts that are here, for the caring servants that are here, for the wise and godly leaders that are here. And thank you, Father, for all that's going on. Even as I stand up here and and prepare to teach, Father, there are men and women elsewhere right now in this building ministering to children and caring for those who are visiting or worrying about whether we have enough toilet paper in the bathroom and uh, these, these things, Father, that just seem at times to be just mundane, everyday things. But, Father, the collective effect of all of that service is an encouragement to any who would come here to be blessed by what they, they need, which is you. So thank you, Father, for those servants. Thank you for this building. Thank you for those who have been a part of this for so long, even since the beginning, so that we can be strong enough to serve again this weekend. But, Father, we want to do so much more. We just have a heart, Father, that knows that so many in this city are starving to death spiritually. Uh, They just don't have the word of God being taught. They just don't understand what you have provided for them. They're trapped in sin and in the worldliness around them, and they don't know how to get out of it. And the Bible is there to help them, Father, and yet no one's preaching it, it seems. And, Father, we're not going to solve everybody's problem. That's not our goal. But, Father, we just ask you to give us the opportunity to serve as many as you would care to bless us with because, Father, we want to make that difference in this city. We know what it does in our life. We want to see that joy in other lives. And we ask for the privilege that it would be to serve them. Help us reach that group wherever they are and bring them into our fold, Father, and let us care for them. And let's get ready for that, Father, because they're going to need things we are here to provide. So we ask, Lord, as we study tonight, that you be edifying, stirring us up, building us up, preparing us so that when the time comes, we'll be in a better position to serve whoever might show uh, show in this place or wherever we go. So, Father, help us understand these words tonight. Teach through me as only you can and give us an understanding of what to do with what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get back into... Matthew's two-chapter section on miracles. These are the miracles Jesus did while he was in the Galilee. He was performing miraculous signs wherever he went. And as you already heard me teach in past weeks, miraculous signs were a key for helping Jesus demonstrate the truth of what he claimed. And here's how that works. You all have heard the saying, talk is cheap. But miracles are currency, especially in a culture that is as religious As Israel was. Miracles are, by definition, an extraordinary happening of some kind that can't be explained by natural means. So when a man walks around accomplishing miracles, it says God is with that individual. And if God is willing to bestow his power on somebody in that way, then it also says that God is endorsing what he's saying. I mean, it only stands to reason. If God didn't like what the man was saying, he wouldn't be empowering him to do all the miracles because the miracles are what get people to listen. So that's the logic that comes out of this. So miracles, in a sense, validate the claims of the individual who can perform them. And in fact, Jesus' miracles were such powerful testimony that it forced his critics to try to figure out a way to explain them away. Otherwise, everyone would have accepted Jesus' testimony, or so they feared. It's like the young Jewish boy who came home from synagogue one day and was excited to tell his father what he learned. He's a little little six-year-old. Moshe comes home from the synagogue and says, Hey, Dad... I uh, learned about 
the Passover today. And it was incredibly exciting. And his father's very happy to hear that his son is learning these things and says, well, tell me all about it. And his son says, well, Moses was about to take the Jews out of Egypt when suddenly the Israeli Air Force appeared with thundering jets and they bombed Egypt. And then the Egyptians sent out their own helicopters and the Israeli Air Force sent jets in and shot them down. And at that point, Moses and his people got onto Israeli ships and they crossed the Red Sea. And his father, you know, incredulous at his son's story, says, is that the version of the Exodus that you were taught? And his son says, well, no, but if I told you the real story, you wouldn't believe me. (laughs) That's the power of miracles. That is, they forced Jesus' audience to take a second look at his claims, the things he was saying about himself and about God and about the kingdom and all the rest, because it was hard to refute somebody who had such power. That's the power of miracles. So in this section that we're studying now, chapter 8 and 9, What Matthew has done, as I've told you, is highlighted 10 miracles that Jesus performed during his time in the Galilee. They all work to support his claims to being Messiah and to being deity, for that matter. He compiled these miracles very carefully so as to provide a representative cross-section of all that Jesus did while he was in the Galilee. They emphasize Jesus' power. They emphasize his authority over everything, over heaven, over earth, over the body, over the spirit, over this age and over the next. That's the cross-section we're going to see as we look at all ten of these miracles. But as you know, I've already told you that Matthew has changed the order of these events. He's mixed them up, moved them around, so that he could create three groups that helped focus our attention on what they're really doing, what these miracles are really saying. And today we're going to cover the final miracle in the first group of three. This is the group of physical healings, Christ healing the body. And in this miracle, this third one, you're going to clearly see that Matthew has moved around the order of events. So let's start there. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick, lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. Now, I'm stopping there just because this is really the extent of it. There's not a lot of detail. In Matthew's account, Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law is recorded as happening after his encounter with the centurion, which is what we studied last week. But in reality, because we have other Gospels, we know that these events happened in another moment, on a Sabbath day, immediately following a Sabbath service in Capernaum. And in that service, we're told in Luke's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, rather, we're told that Jesus had just healed a man who was possessed with a demon in the synagogue. And the impact on the crowd was immediate and obvious. You know, they're stunned by what they just saw. Then Mark tells us in Mark one twenty nine that immediately after that Sabbath service is over, I mean, what do you do after you finish church on Sundays? In churches that do church on Sundays. Where are we going to eat, right? That's what they did after Sabbath. In Mark, we're told that after the Sabbath, they all go to Peter's house, presumably because they're going to be cared for there, be served there a meal. Now, looking back at Matthew's description, the first thing worth noting is that Peter has a mother-in-law. How do you get a (laughs) mother-in-law? With a wife, right? So what we're saying is, Peter had a wife. I don't know if all of you knew that or not. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, that... All apostles had wives. All of them had wives. And Paul goes on to say that Jesus' brothers also all took wives. 
And he adds that it's the right of any servant of Christ to have a, a spouse, a, a wife, or a husband. There's nothing wrong with that, in other words. So it's a denial, in effect, of any doctrine that might try to claim that God's servants have to remain unmarried and celibate. That's nonsense. I mean, if you want to, you can, but it's not a biblical requirement. Peter had a wife. Who knew? And it's like, we knew, I'm just saying that as a rhetorical question. It's likely that Peter invited Jesus to his home, intending that he would be served a meal as an honor for Peter after the Sabbath service. I don't get the sense from Mark's gospel that he really had any intention to bring him home to heal the mother-in-law. Because in Mark's gospel, it says that as they arrived, then the disciples immediately chose to tell Jesus, oh, by the way, Peter's mother-in-law is not feeling very well. And that could suggest it was serious or they just wanted to take pity on her. But in that day, it says in the text she has a fever. In that day, fever was considered a disease, not a symptom of a disease. Now, we know today that it can be caused by any number of ailments. And we don't know here what that disease was. But whatever the cause, it was serious enough that it prevented her from getting out of bed. And uh, must have been serious enough to warrant a supernatural healing because they felt the need to have to tell Jesus about it. And then Matthew says Jesus went in, saw the woman, touched her hand, and immediately she was healed. She rose up and she served him. There's a wonderful little picture there, right? That as Christ touches us and heals us, our natural response is to turn back and serve him out of a gratitude, out of love. And that's a, that's a whole other preaching. But Mark describes Jesus doing it a little differently. He says that he raised the woman up out of bed by lifting her hand and then she was healed. Luke says that he rebuked the fever with his words. Now, what's true? Well, all three. All three, right? They're all three reporting aspects of what happened. Jesus spoke against the disease, and he reached out to touch the woman, and in doing so, he lifted her up out of bed after she was healed, and then she served him. So the touch is the thing that immediately moved her out of the bed, it seems. And at that point, she's not just without a fever. She's fully restored. I mean, this is where you see the miracle happening, because there are times when our fever leaves us pretty quickly. That's not a miracle necessarily. What's a miracle here is she went from not being able to get out of bed because of a fever to being so strong and capable that she's now ready to serve other people. That's a miracle. All right, your body doesn't work that way under normal circumstances. Can you imagine what amazing feeling that would have been for her, by the way? I always like to think about what would it have been like to experience the miracle, to be on that side of it, right? I don't think you felt like a rush of energy. I'm not saying you, you, know, you, you levitated or you glowed. I'm just saying you went from feeling really, really, really bad to suddenly yourself in an instant. I mean, you must have just been so much joy about that, so much just excitement over what God did. Now, this is the third healing of a body that we've seen now in Matthew's gospel uh, in this first section. There are three groups of these miracles, like I mentioned in this section. The first one is miracles of the healing of the body, which we just finished. The second group of miracles consists of his power over the creation itself. That's our next thing to do. And then the third group shows Jesus' power over the spirit realm. And as we complete each of these sections, my plan with you is to take just a moment to consider Jesus' power in each of those areas. Because I think it's worth an extra moment to understand what we are to know about him and his power in these areas now. Even as we understand what he did then, what are we to understand now? Was it only for then? Does it still happen today? And specifically for the one tonight, his power over healing. Matthew showed Jesus healing three diseases altogether here. Leprosy, which was an incurable disease. Paralysis, which largely is incurable as well. And then a general fever. 
The first healing he did by his word alone. This third healing we just saw now, he does by a touch. And you remember what he did in between those two? The second one with the centurion? He heals without a word, without a touch, not even being present in the same place as the person who was healed. Remember? So what's Matthew's point with that cross section? I think it's to show us that he has inherent power over the physical condition of humanity. He has power to correct our physical weaknesses in our body, that is, our infirmities, our injuries, and the like, all our physical limitations. And in some cases, he may choose, as he did here, to use a, a physical process to accomplish that healing. The most mundane of that would be your doctor. I mean, if you think because your doctor healed you, God wasn't involved, your God's not big enough. You know, you don't understand how God works in that case. There's something in theology called the conservation of miracles. It's a, it's a, a theory, if you will. It's a principle of theology that says, the conservation of miracles says that God could uh, separate the Red Sea every day of the week if he wanted. He could, he could make burning bushes happen left and right if he wanted. But what he chooses to do is to work through natural means 99.9% of the time. And rarely, and only on occasion, does he choose to intervene in supernatural means. Because it suits his long-term purpose not to turn the whole thing into a sideshow. But rather to require us to depend on faith from the word, not from sight of miracles. So the conservation of miracles does not say that God can't do them. Or that he never does them. It just says he rarely does them. Because he chooses to work through natural means most of the time. But because he chooses to do that, it's really easy for you and I to sit back and say, I need a miracle. Well, maybe you just need a doctor. Maybe a doctor will be the way God provides for you. Maybe it's medicine and maybe it's a doctor. Or maybe it will be some combination. But it doesn't mean it's not God if an aspirin solves your problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was still the provision of that blessing in the course of history. There was still God making that available to us. But there is still a place, even today in my opinion, for God to work outside the natural. He can choose to work, even though he's not here with us now, even though he's physically separated from us for a time, seated at the right hand of the Father, not present on the earth as it is right now, knowing he's not dependent on a touch, knowing he doesn't have to speak a word, that merely his will to see someone healed is enough. We saw that with the centurion. That's enough for a healing to take place. Well, friends, if he could do that while he was on the earth, he's no less capable of doing that now while he's seated at the right hand of the Father, is he? That means that even though Jesus has left the earth for a while, he could still heal. The Bible says he lives to intercede on behalf of the saints, seated at the right hand of the Father. That means he may heal us when he desires, from a distance, without a touch or a word, merely by his will, as he chooses, whether by natural or supernatural means. And the Bible encourages us to pray for that mercy. There's nothing wrong with that. You should take full advantage of that opportunity. I don't know why we wouldn't. Why wouldn't we pray for the thing that we want, when God has made it clear that he's capable and at times willing to do it. It would seem like that's a smart part of the process of seeking for our benefit. But there's another side to this conversation that you know, I hope, that I'm going to get to. And here I am now getting to it. And that is that you have to recognize Christ's power to heal. Being true doesn't mean that he will grant healing every time. Because it still depends on his will. In fact, the last time I checked... 
the death rate for Christians is 100%. I mean, you're still alive, but I'm pretty sure that's going to follow the average sooner or later, right? The body eventually fails, eventually. And if Christ doesn't come back for his first, you're going to die. Um, one day. I'm going to die one day. Which tells you that regardless of how many times Christ may say yes to your request for healing, sooner or later, the answer to that prayer will be no. True? I mean, it's self-evidently true. Sooner or later, he withholds his healing and allows the body to fail. In fact, being healthy is just the slowest possible way to die. I mean, it's funny to laugh about it until you're close, and then you're like... But the truth is that you cannot hold a view from Scripture that God's ability to heal, naturally or supernaturally, binds Him to healing every time. Because the human condition is self-evidently proving that He is not doing that. Because you die, eventually. Now that leads us to an important conclusion about this whole topic. One that I believe Matthew himself is drawing us to in this text that we're going to study tonight. If Jesus has the power to reverse the causes for why our body fails, then that means he has the power to grant you eternal life. And yet, because we know he doesn't preserve this body forever, then it tells you he must have something better in store. That's the only conclusion we can draw. He has the power to keep you alive forever, but he's not doing it in this body. That means there's something better waiting. And in fact, Scripture teaches us that one day, Christ will heal, in a sense, your body permanently and completely. But friends, that healing is not going to be accomplished by repairing your current body. The Bible says your present body is not an appropriate home for eternity. As much as you may love it. It's not. I hate to tell you this, if you didn't know this already, but your current body is flawed. It's, I'm not looking at anyone in particular here. <laughs> Trying not to. It's broken. It's defective. You were born with a birth defect. Do you know that? It's called sin. And the problem with that birth defect is you cannot fix it. Not in the sense of repairing what you currently own, that body. Christ has to do better. And he has something better planned for you. He's going to replace your defective body, the Bible says. In fact, when I say you and I talk to you in that term, I am not talking about your physical body. Not at all. Because your physical body, according to Scripture, is not you. I'd like to compare the the physical body that God has given to us right now, the one we have right now, I'd like to compare it to a rental car. And I think it's a pretty good comparison. It's something you use for a while. You appreciate it. It does something useful for you. But there's a day coming when you turn it back in. And in the meantime, you know, you don't waste a lot of time worrying about it too much. I mean, when it runs out of gas, you've got to put gas in it. You know, you're not going to wreck it. But you don't wash it. You don't get an oil change. You know, you don't go somewhere and put leather seats in the thing. You know, you just use it. It's just a temporary accommodation. That's a biblical perspective about your body. It's a rental car. When you're done with it, you're going to turn it back in. And like a rental car, you don't want to get too attached to it. Whoever falls in love with a rental car won't give it back. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? The Bible says your body, my body, will return to dust one day, along with the entire earth and all the universe, by the way. 
It all burns up, the Bible says. It all disappears in a future day. And if that's a hard concept for you to grasp, then you might want to spend more time in your Bible because it's, it's specifically told to us in Scripture. But the real you, you so you, you are not your body. Your body's going to the grave. It's not you. The real you that is your spirit, that's eternal, the Bible says. And what's so ironic about this concept is the unbelieving world gets this whole thought completely backward, which is so often the case when it comes to spiritual truth. Here's what the world tells you. The world tells you that the physical earth, the physical universe, and your, you know, the, the, the things you kind of can see, that that is effectively permanent. I mean, they might tell you that it's going to go away, but they'll add, oh, in a billion years. I mean, you know, it's so far in advance in their mind that it's effectively permanent. You know, you can just depend on the sun coming up every day and the stars and never going to happen, never going to change, rather, never going to go away. But then they turn right around and they tell you, oh, but you're temporary. You're very temporary. That you live a few decades and then you cease to exist and there's nothing after death and it's all nothingness. Of course, with that kind of thinking, where does that lead? Well, it changes your thinking about what to do with your time on earth. And it's why you see the world making a goal for themselves to get the most out of this world for as much as they can, for the short time they've got. And by the way, it also lets them ignore any question or thought of eternity or judgment or hell or heaven, right? So they can conveniently put all that aside and not even think about it or talk about it. And every day that they do live is all of a rat race of who can die with the most toys. I mean, that is actually a logical approach to life if you believe there's nothing after this life and we're temporary. That makes a lot of sense. Hedonism is the logical response to being atheistic. But the truth, according to Scripture, is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. This world is temporary. It's going to disappear in a day to come. It's going to burn up. If nothing else, you're going to leave it. And your physical body is going to die too. But you last forever, the Bible says. Every human being lasts forever in your spirit. Your body may die, but your body is not you. And after you shed this container, you get a new one. And did you know that unbelievers also get a new body according to Scripture? Everyone is resurrected, not just the believer. The question is where you get to live forever. That's the issue. The issue is where do you spend eternity in that new body? That's the fundamental issue. But whether you're going to have one or not is easy. Yes, you're going to have another body. Which means you're going to live forever somewhere. So don't put a lot of focus on the condition of your rental car. Instead, consider the question of where you're going to spend eternity in the new one you're going to get. Right? So Christ's plan for healing. And this is back to the point for the night. Christ's plan for healing our body. It is not like an extended warranty. Or, you know, some unlimited repair of your current body. That's not the promise of Scripture. The solution that Christ offers in the Scripture is that He'll replace your failing body with a new, resurrected one, something that will never fail, does not sin, and is like Him. That's what we all have coming, friends. That is the promise. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have that in your future. Guaranteed, it's coming, whether you knew it or not. The Bible says you're going to get resurrected. You're never going to die again. And what's really cool when you think about it is that body, the Bible says, won't hurt. It won't experience sickness. It won't have infirmities. It never grows weak. It doesn't get wrinkles. It doesn't get old. Hallelujah. Can you wrap your brain around that? 
I mean, I know we think about it objectively, or, or let's say academically. We think about it academically. Oh, that would be very interesting. I look forward to that day. Yeah. But think about it more personally. Can you... I mean, how amazing will it be to experience life like that? You get up every day, and your body is exactly the way you want it to be, and it was the same it was yesterday, and it's not going to get worse tomorrow. It's, this, it's, it's eternally that way. How will we not get up every day under those circumstances and thank the Lord for having freed us from the curse of death? I mean, that would just be... I don't know that you'll ever get used to it. That's your eternal state. That's what we have waiting for us in the resurrection and in the kingdom to come. And Jesus' healings in Matthew 8 is our proof that he has the power to bring those things to pass. That his, that he's the creator God. That, that, that our bodies are clay in his hands. And he can mold them or remold them however he wishes. And he's promising to do that for everyone who's come to him in faith. So let me ask you this. Which one would you rather have? It's not a hard question. Would you rather hold on to your current body with all its wear and tear and mileage and problems and, and limitations and then having to get sick and then having to go to Christ and get healed again and then you're going to get sick again and get healed again and just do that forever? I mean, who really wants that, right? What's so interesting is how often those in the church who have been mistaught, frankly, about healing, they fall into that mindset without ever thinking about it. They just want to get healed over and over again. I'd like to say, how would you like to never get sick again? Oh, that would be nice. Well, that's a whole different solution then. That's the one that Christ actually has for you. Never having to worry again. No one wants to keep this lemon of a body that we have, do we? Don't you want the shiny new body with the new car smell? I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but you know, there's... The Bible's clear that we're not going to get a new body that looks like an alien or something. You know, if you're wondering, well, what is a new body going to be look like? Probably a lot like the current one. God created man in the image that he did when he made Adam. I don't think he's got a different plan for that. I think he's just going to give us one that's not affected by sin. That we're largely going to know what life is like there because we know what it was like here. Just erase all the bad stuff. <laughs> that's a pretty big difference. Obviously, most of us are ready right now to dump this old, worn-out body now that we know what's coming, right? And so we should be. But as the saying goes, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And that's the truth of this, right? You have to be ready, friends, to let go of this thing you have. Whenever that time comes, whenever God is appointed for it, if you're going to get that new, better one you're looking forward to, that you can't get there from here without that going on in the meantime. That's the way it happens. And I certainly understand why we might have reasons to want to stay here a little longer and hold on to what we have a little longer. I mean, we all know what that feeling is. I'm not saying that we should want death tomorrow. What I am saying is the biblical understanding of these matters doesn't put inordinate emphasis on staying here. Doesn't make living in this body the main goal. Doesn't make it the all be all. Because if we do, friends, you're going to get disappointed because one day it doesn't go on. One day it fails. That's for our benefit. I want you to listen to Paul's attitude about this whole topic. And he sums it up in 2 Corinthians very, very simply. It's beautiful. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore, do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And 
while we look at, we'll look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, speaking of the body, our earthly tent is torn down, we will have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Got an amen in there for anybody? Paul, I love the way he starts that. He says, don't lose heart. Do you know what he's saying? Don't lose heart by focusing on the decay of your physical body. Because you know what? If you turn to the mirror every day and watch that progression, that's a recipe for losing heart fast. I mean, for me anyway, I don't know about the rest of you. Right? I mean, as things deteriorate, you're like, I wish I was 25 again. Well, then you'd have to go through all of this life again. Do you want that or do you want the new one? I mean, we all have regrets, but that doesn't mean we want to go backward. Paul says, don't lose heart by focusing on this process. That's what happens when you put too much emphasis on trying to save your body. It it causes you to realize, I'm wanting something I can't have. And the irony is you're wanting exactly the wrong thing. And you're fighting a losing battle. The course of everyone's life, Paul says, is decay. Whether that happens quickly or whether that takes many decades. And Paul says, knowing this, he takes satisfaction not in how his body goes through life, but in his internal man, that is the spirit, in the way that it's being strengthened and matured during that decay process. Think about it for a second. Christ is using... Our experiences in life, whether that's trials or persecutions or how we handle things like sickness or how we handle things like a difficult life and a difficult job or a difficult family or whatever it is he brings us through, he uses those experiences to train us, to expose our sin so that we can see it for what it is and choose to address it in our life and move beyond it. But as you're doing that, you're maturing your inner man. And you know where that maturity pays off? In that new body. Because Scripture, and I don't have time to get into this tonight, but I can tell you as a matter of of fact, Scripture says that the degree of spiritual maturity that we obtain now is the degree of spiritual maturity we carry into the kingdom. You see, you can be sinless. We can all be sinless, as we will be. And yet, not all of us be equally mature. And because of that, the roles and responsibility that Christ will assign to us in the kingdom, which is part of our eternal reward, will vary depending on how well we used our time now to prepare for it. And what Paul is saying is, if you get too absorbed in worrying about the things that are decaying, what you're missing an opportunity to do is to, is to work on that inner man that God is working out in you through these trials and tribulations so that you'll be prepared when the new body comes to do what he's asked you to do. That, friends, is living with eyes for eternity. And I love the way he describes the comparison between those two worlds. He says... Your experiences in this body now are light and momentary. Now, I know there's days when you're going to question whether Paul knew what he was talking about on that, because you're not going to feel like they're light, and they may feel like they never end. But he says, if you have eyes for eternity, then you can make a better assessment. They're light and they're momentary. Any crisis, any disappointment, any setback in your life, failings, hurts, persecutions, and the like, they're all light and they're momentary. They're light Because compared to the weightiness of the glory that is coming for us in the kingdom, you won't even think about these things. And they're momentary when you compare them to an eternal bliss in the kingdom. Can anything compare to eternity? 
Instead, Paul says, here's how you take heart. He says, know that that tent, using a euphemism, referring to our body, he says, know that that tent is being torn down. It's dying. And therefore, as long as you live in it, you're going to kind of groan in the way that it goes. You're going to feel the pains. You're going to feel the weaknesses. That's, you know, that's like I said, being healthy is the slowest way to die. When you feel those pains, you're feeling death happen a little at a time. But then you also remember that your faith in Jesus Christ has destined you to receive a new body, one that is in glory, one that will not have these issues. And so every day you're dying, you're one day closer to that body. I mean, that's an eternal perspective. That takes a little maturity. It means you have to step back from your situation just a little bit, not wallow too much in self-pity, have eyes for eternity and say, whatever you do with this body, God, that's fine. Use me however you want. Make my life a testimony, and if you need to, make my death a testimony. Whatever works, I don't care. I've got to turn it in anyway. I want to get the most out of it for your sake. I want to get to that new body, that eternal dwelling. That's where we have our hope. If you've struggled with this, and I know some Christians do, we struggle with our hope being on eternal things instead of on temporal things. We try to, we'd start getting really wrapped up in hoping on how our body here is going to turn out. And, and Paul says, if that's you, that's a recipe for losing heart. Move that hope where it needs to be. Put it back on the eternal. The promise that says you're going to get what you're waiting for. That's the biblical perspective on healing. That, in other words, you can earnestly seek healing from Jesus in prayer for what he might choose to do with this body now. Yes, do that. That is not an unbiblical mindset. That is not a failure to have eyes for eternity. That is perfectly legitimate. And he may heal you one way or another. And when he does, bless him for it. Praise him for it. And we will too. But you also know at the same time that eventually he's going to bring your body to an end one way or another. And so when he does, you cannot look at him and say, well, you didn't heal me today. You must not be concerned with my suffering. Now, what he's saying to you is, I love you too much to leave you in that body any longer. That's the answer for everyone sooner or later. And when you get that perfect body, and we're all together in that new world that he's going to create for us, I assure you, you will not be saying, I wish I could have lived in that old rental car a day longer. You're not going to be regretting how... How it turned out. You're not. I think that's what Matthew wanted you to know. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 16. He says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It's that quote that tells me that Matthew wanted us to see this with eyes for eternity. And here's what I mean. First, in 16, we're just told that Jesus goes about healing more people here. What happened because of the scene is that he's healed in the synagogue on a Sabbath. He went to Peter's house. But because of the Mishnah, because of the way the Pharisees taught on the law, it was against the law to go get healing on the Sabbath. And all the people knew that. So they see Jesus heal. The word gets around the city on the Sabbath. And people are like, I know what I'm doing tonight. When the sun goes down and the Sabbath is over, I'm going to go find that guy because if he can heal, I need that healing. Well, look how it opens in verse 16. When evening came. When the Sabbath was over, here comes everybody to Peter's house looking for healing. And notice Jesus healed them. He continues healing all who were ill. He's not putting any preconditions on this. He's not making anybody stand on their head or confess faith or do anything. He's just in mercy healing physical bodies. 
But then the quote in 17 is the key. Notice that Matthew adds this quote. It's from Isaiah 53, 4. Now look, friends, when the New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, as you see going on here, you need to understand what he's expecting of the reader. The pattern is this. You're not supposed to just take the little bit that he inserts and use only that. It's intended to draw your mind back to the original text where you then go read the full context of what was going on and you apply the full context. That's the idea. So rather than quote, you know, 12 verses from Isaiah 53, he just quotes one that you're going to remember. But the point is, he's telling you, go back and look at that chapter. That chapter has something to say about what's going on. Right now, Do you know what you find when you read a larger section out of Isaiah 53? Let me just read three verses for you. It speaks of Jesus, and Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Many of you probably recognize this passage. It's a well-known passage out of Isaiah because it's so clearly a description of Jesus dying on the cross substitutionary atonement for our sake. And if you go back and read the whole chapter, it goes into great detail about that event. Hundreds of years before it took place. Isaiah says he'll be despised by men in his day and that God the Father will assign to Christ the role of bearing our griefs and our sorrows and our transgressions. God's chastening for our sin fell on him instead of on us. He was crushed for our sins, our iniquities. And then Isaiah says this. He says, by all of that scourging, by that punishment laid out on him, we are healed, he says in the text. And... If you keep it in its proper context, you clearly understand what that means. That, in other words, it's a spiritual healing, right? It's the opposite of sin and iniquity and and all the rest. So the language of the passage is entirely spiritual in nature. It's talking about transgressions and iniquities and so on, smitten of God and struck by God and so on. So the griefs and the sorrows in that passage refer to the consequences of sin, including physical consequences and eternal consequences. All of that Jesus bore for us in our place. Paying the price for our sin, right? We know this. This is basic New Testament theology. But there are some who would come to this passage, both in Matthew and in Isaiah, and try to tell you that this is a promise that Jesus is always going to heal your physical body because he died on the cross. That the word healing there refers specifically to physical healing. Now their confusion, if you want to be generous about their aims, if you call it confusion... It arises partly out of a misunderstanding of what Matthew has written here because Matthew's version of Isaiah's quote is a little different. It reads differently than my version. You noticed in my version, when I quoted from Isaiah, the text said, Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. But what Matthew quotes from that verse is, He took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It's the same verse being quoted in both cases. Why are they different? Those differences are just the result of subtle differences in the Hebrew itself. That is, the word in Hebrew for griefs is literally the word sicknesses. And the word for sorrows is literally the word pain in Hebrew. So you could translate Isaiah 53.4 to sound as if he's describing physical things if you take it out of context and don't realize that he's simply using those words euphemistically 
to talk about spiritual pain, spiritual illness. Remember I said you have a birth defect? It's called sin. That's what Isaiah is saying. But Jesus took that on himself in our place, the penalty for that. So the context of Isaiah 53 makes it clear that he's describing spiritual matters. So why did Matthew quote it here? Because what Matthew is showing you here is a physical healing, right? So why did he go back to Isaiah and pull that out? I think it is because, ironically, he did not want you to focus solely on the physical side of what Jesus is doing right now. He wanted to direct your thoughts to the spiritual side of what he's doing. Because, friends, this is the problem with healing. Physical healing, especially in a supernatural way like this, it draws a crowd, always. In fact, it brought crowds in Jesus' day to hear his teaching, which is part of the reason why he was doing it. But there's a downside to that. It has the potential, miracles like this have the potential to distract us from more meaningful things. To get our eyes down instead of up. To think about, oh, you made his body feel good. I want my body to feel good, which is understandable. But as I've said already, it's unsustainable. Sooner or later, it won't work anymore. So what I think he wanted to do in this quote is make sure you and I saw the bigger picture of what it means that Jesus is doing these healings. It's not about Jesus fixing the world, as so many liberal theologians have come to make the gospel about, and Jesus about, and the church about. It's about feeding people and clothing people and making justice happen and social things get better and so on. Friends, that's trying to fix a rental car. It's not the mission of the church. Jesus' mission was recruiting people out of this world so that when it's destroyed, they're not caught up in it. He wasn't here to repair your body. He wasn't here to repair the universe. His plan is to replace both of them with something better. And unless he went to the cross and paid the price for sin in the way that Isaiah describes, there could have been no plan for doing such. And certainly no physical healing in the meantime. Without that sacrifice, there's no spiritual rebirth. There's only judgment. Friends, the true healing that we all need is spiritual healing. And if I heal the spirit, if Christ comes into your heart by faith and heals your spirit, giving you a new spirit, you know what that does? It first puts an end to the sin problem, ultimately, in the long run. It gives opportunity for us to be made new in the image of Christ. But you know what it also does in the short term? It gives you access to the healer, who may, in his providence and mercy, heal us from time to time in the meantime. It's like a win-win. You get both, potentially. But if all you focus on is the healing physically and never look at it spiritually, you get neither. We all have confidence in Jesus' ability to heal. And we look forward to the day that we won't have to worry anymore about seeking healing. So with that, let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you make opportunity available for us to see our, our needs met now and in eternity. Thank you for healing. We pray, Father, for those who will come up tonight that as the words are spoken over them by these men and women, that it would be your will to grant them the grace and the mercy of a healing tonight, Father. Not because we want a, a miracle just for the sake of one, and not because we expect it or demand it, but because like a child coming to his or her father, we just appeal to your goodness and your love, and we ask, Lord, in, in hopeful expectation that it would be your will so that those who are healed would serve a day longer in that health Bring you more glory if they can. But Father, whatever your answer may be to any of the prayers that you hear, Father, we give you 
praise and glory nonetheless for your decisions are always right and your will is always perfect and good. And we know that one day, Father, this body must be put away with him. Hallelujah that you have given us something better to hope for. Let us keep our minds on that, our eyes on eternity and not be tempted to lose heart because of what we see happening to our body here. And thank you, Father, for the time we have, whatever time that is. Let us use it to the most to glorify you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.